Good evening and welcome here tonight to tonight's 5 by 15 and uh, have we got a treat for you, certainly for me without a doubt. I'm really delighted that we're going to be welcoming two extremely remarkable people to 5 by 15 tonight, Abby Morgan and David David Nichols. Abby is the BAFTA and Emmy Award-winning playwright and screenwriter behind, behind films like The Iron Lady, The Hour, Brick Lane and Shame, plus of course the riveting TV series The Split. But she's also, and this is what she's going to be talking about tonight, the author of a, a book, a new book, an autobiography. It's called This Is Not A Pity Memoir. And it's her own story of living with her partner's devastating illness. It's a amazing book. It's full of laughter and insight, and it, it's pretty tough in places. And she will be uh, telling David, I hope, all about it. But they will also be talking about things, many things they have in common, like film adaptations. David, of course, is the extraordinary author of One Day and so many other huge bestsellers. And he's written five bestsellers and a lot of screenplays, which include the new version of Far From the Madding Crowd, and my own personal favourite, I think, TV adaptation of my life, which was the Melrose books, which were written by Edward St. Aubin, and which I thought personally could never be adapted for television. And it was a great triumph. Um, both of all their books, uh, Abby's books and David's books, are available through our bookseller, Newham Books. The details will be in the chat. And um, they are going to talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll take your questions. And do please put, put questions in for both of them about all the aspects of both their fantastic careers. So I'll now slither away and hand over with many thanks and much anticipation to David. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. That's very kind of you. And it's a real pleasure to be here uh, with everyone. Thank you all. Um, Abby, I realize I, I've known, uh, I did the maths, Abby. I think it's 24 years now. Um, yeah. uh, I first met Abby when she was working on her first original TV drama called My Fragile Heart. And I was uh, working as a script editor at that time. And so we bump into each other in the office and I read her wonderful scripts. And since then, you know, I've obviously become a huge fan and was wonderful films and television series I've admired hugely, but the small kind of mean uh, competitive part of me has always thought, well, at least she hasn't written a book. <laughs> and now you have, and it's a really wonderful, beautiful book, a really extraordinary book, I think. Um, which I read at, at an early stage before publication and, and I've been rereading with such admiration. And I suppose my first question was really about the process of writing that book, because what I, I love about it is it has both the immediacy of a diary, you know, a present tense account of, of events, but also a, a kind of very, a, the thoughtfulness of something written in retrospect. And I want to know about the genesis of the book and the, mm. the process of writing it. Uh, well, first, let me just say, it's just lovely to be talking to you and really calm your pen. It's all OK, because I'm certainly <laughs> not snapping at your heels. I mean, I think, my gosh, I mean, hats off to you. I remember I remember meeting a, a friend of my mum's who's a novelist when I was about 20. And I was saying, yeah, I'm going to write a novel. I'm now 54 and I have yet to write a novel. But yes, I've written a memoir. And in many ways, um, you know, memoirs are kind of fascinating to me anyway. I mean, it's sort of inbuilt in the title that 
I one of the first memoirs I absolutely adored was Ruth Picardy's Before I Say Goodbye. And in fact, you know, the book acknowledges uh, one of my first conversations I had with Jacob, my partner, who's really at the heart of this book, uh, when we met at a dinner party and I was trying to chase the rights to that beautiful memoir, which was, of course, the last few months of, of Ruth Picardy's life, fantastic journalist writer, as she wrote beautifully about breast cancer and, and just the kind of the kind of highs and lows and pain and comedy of what it's like to be facing your death. And so I'd always been very inspired by that kind of writing. But I guess when, you know, when this medical crisis hit us, because it was really a medical crisis, um, just to give a little bit of a background for anyone who hasn't read the book, but in June 2018, um, Jacob, my partner, an actor, father of uh, my two teenage children, um, collapsed with a brain seizure. And so ensued kind of what's really still feels like sort of four very crazy years. Um, and, and in many ways, I feel like the, the world has gone through such a crazy time as well. But but I guess what 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 drew me to writing was at the heart of Jacob's collapse and a, a very long period, um, nearly seven months uh, in a coma was a key thing, which is when he woke up, he woke up with a really rare delusion called Capgras delusion, which is the belief in doubles or imposters. And um, that can often be focused on anything from a pet to a property, but more than likely it's focused to the person you're most close to. And in this case, it was me. And so Jacob woke up not knowing who I was and, and the belief that although he had spent the last 18 years with Abby Morgan, I was not that Abby Morgan. And so began this kind of split life that really went on for about 18 months, really. Um, and I guess the book came out of that kind of crazy period, not only, you know, the process of going through the kind of catastrophe that Jacob went through, um, but also, you know, really having to assess who we were as a couple, who I was, um, when Jacob woke up and didn't know who I was and who we were in relation to the last 18 years we had together, the life we had together, the children we had together. Um, and so the book really came out of initially a kind of 100-day diary I'd started in the mid very early on, the first night Jacob collapsed, I came home and I started to write to him saying, this is what happened to you today. Because I think if you go through a surreal trauma and it is genuinely surreal, it is outside of the norm, outside of reality, you feel like you have to, a little like a detective, keep, keep hold of all the, the little bits of evidence, details, you know, data that you collect along the way. And so the book kind of poured out of me um, and I've, you, you know, I often really admire writers who talk about, you know, books that pour out of them, novels that they, you know, they couldn't not write. And I've never, ever had that with writing. I've always had that kind of staring at a blank page, you know, a lot of internet shopping and eventually starting something around midday. And so for me to find myself and really it, the writing began at the start of the second lockdown. And this is when Jacob had come home and he'd started his rehabilitation and was I could start to see chinks of light that I started to write the book. And so um, I don't know if I've got a novel in me and I really hope I've not got another memoir in me because um, I kind of feel like I don't yeah. want to look at my life that closely again. But I guess the screenwriter in me was so alert that I felt like I had to get it down on, on, on the page. Really. I mean, I, 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 were, you, were you writing a diary before that or were you responding to the to the emergency totally situation? To the emergency of the situation. I mean, I'm okay. someone who, I, I mean, like, I think every writer... Um, I remember hearing David Hare, I don't know if this is true or not, saying 
that he tends not to keep notes. He just remembers the stuff that's important. And I sort of took on that philosophy for a long time. But the older I've got, the more I've had to keep fragments and details the whole time. And the joy of the digital phone, you know, the joy of the phone now is it becomes your everything. So I found myself in hospital recording, videoing. And then at night, I think because I couldn't sleep, because I was probably profoundly traumatized. Um, and because no one tells you about a coma, Jake, after two weeks of what was effectively a cognitive um, psychotic physical breakdown, the decision was taken to place Jake in a medically induced coma. Uh, and so he, he went into a coma the end of June 2018 and woke the end of January 2019. But nobody tells you a coma yeah. is weirdly active for everybody who's, who's working to keep that person alive. But for the rest of you, it's like you are the audience, you are the onlookers, you are... You are that other person in the room watching as everyone else um, works to save and and move and, and look after the person you love most in the world. And so I found myself at night almost having to go back over my day. And the way I did that was I started to write a diary to myself. But no, I hadn't. You know, I'm not one of those people who had start, started writing when I was, you know, straight out of the womb. And I was totally... Um, you know, nothing memorable about me in my academic career in any way or, or form. But I kind of came to writing when I was at university. And I look back now and I was a storyteller in terms of I love telling the, you know, the overblown story to family or friends. But I think the diary writing probably did go back to something I had done a little bit as a teenager. Um, and I kind of came back to so I found it an incredible comfort in the middle of it, really. And I guess it's the first time, you know, most of what we do, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of pulling from either incredible research or resource or, 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 or someone else's work of fiction um, or, or fact. But for the first time ever, I had this incredible body of, of unsourced yeah. material, really, that was unfolding in front of me. And so I couldn't not do anything but write it but and interestingly it was really lockdown right it's the reason why I put it into prose because you know I talk a little bit about it in the book but I decided I was going to try and write a play I had a crazy idea when mm -hmm. Jacob came home that I was going to write a play and Jacob was going to star in it and we'd bring all the therapists on and actors would play therapists and it would become this amazing way to help rehabilitate him and then COVID happened and the theatres closed down <laughs> And I thought, well, you know, actually what I still have is my laptop and me and my kitchen. Yeah. So I found myself writing at night and that's really how the book came about. And the book, the book form was different to the diary form. I mean, yes. did you do a different kind of, because I mean, it's, it's such an emotional book, an affecting book. It seems, it seems um, almost callous to talk about it in technical terms, but what I really, really admired about it was the way that, as you say in the book, a lot of it, illness is is boring you know it's 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 a routine it's a it's very repetitive uh and the book is extremely well structured i have a terrible tendency when i'm reading fiction in particular to think well, we don't need the scene forgetting of course that it's not a screenplay it's a book and a book can do different things a book doesn't have to you know a book doesn't you know, doesn't cost anything to film it can it can explore things and in more detail and more slowly than than the screenplay but in this memoir you almost apply a kind of um screenwriting techniques so that there's constant movement and it's extraordinarily compelling as well as being very emo emotional well thank you i mean i i guess i mean you you know as a screenwriter david you know that actually 
in so many ways, the script is the selling document, the script is the conversation mm. you have as a writer to that first reader. And so I, I'm always aware when I'm writing a screenplay that I'm constantly trying to hold the attention. And I think one of the things that was really, well, two things happened in parallel, really. One was I was incredibly grateful for the kind of 20 odd years I had in terms of just the kind of writing skills. I'm, I'm not someone who would ever write a book about how to write or even ever tell anyone how to write, but it was very good to find myself in the worst kind of darkest wood that actually my write, my ability to write and the kind of basic methodology I had within my own work, I, I used with my own experience. And it, it really kind of led me out of the kind of chaos and the emotional um, propulsion of the experience because it's incredibly ad adrenalized when you know there were several moments in that first six months where it, it looked like Jacob might not live and you know but two things were going on it was like one was absolutely overwhelmed and devastated by the experience and at the same time there was this very cold icy chip that runs through I think through every writer and who was constantly watching and observing. And, the, and one of the biggest things that offended me about the experience were the bad plot twists, you know, the moments yeah. where I thought, well, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. terrible. You know, this will never make it to the screenplay. And it's something I talk about in yeah. the book, but I really felt like that. And then there were other moments where I felt, oh my God, this is extraordinary. I've got to, you know, it was out of body. I stepped out of myself. And I think that was partly survival method. And I think also you are trying to make sense of, um, of what is happening to you. And I think for me, I've talked about this before, but I think I had never realized, I'd, you know, someone who works with deadlines all the time, I hadn't really ever faced the biggest deadline, which is mortality. And when you are facing the mortality of someone you love, and then subsequently my own mortality, um, <clears throat> which is another, mm. as I refer to, bad plot twist in the storytelling, um, I, I had to really kind of navigate my way back. And the way I navigated my way back to understanding and making sense of this was to sort of draw on every kind of writing skill I had. So the book is very yeah. much constructed, I think, with the energy and the velocity of those first hundred days, which was probably one of the most intense periods. But actually, um, you know, kind of medical crisis and then you know, when you're in the middle of the storm and then the aftermath of the storm and the recovery of the storm has a very natural rhythm that actually is quite a dramatic rhythm. Yeah. So in a way, I kind of yeah. also a kind of dramatic structure that I use in film and I, find, I look for in a film, really. Yeah. I mean, I found as a reader, obviously because I know you socially and professionally, I kind of knew some of the story, but even so, I found what you refer to as, as the plot twists really breathtaking and, and and shocking and i the first of them i suppose the capgras syndrome that you could spend all of this time nurturing and caring and and and, and, and sitting and waiting and finally that looks like as if there's a a positive uh move towards rehab and then this terrible twist of not being recognized of not being acknowledged um as you say it's 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 um it's almost too much but what really comes across in the book and which i think you expressed so honestly is is the kind of anger the, the fury it's very uncensored mm. and, and frank and i wondered how, how that felt to write um because i i think you do it very bravely and and and, and honestly and openly well you know, it's interesting because I think, of course, they're, they're very, you know, I'm very grateful for those words. Um, but it's, you, you, you know, it's really survival. And, you know, people often say, mm. well, one of the things I think about now is I'm incredibly proud, not of myself as an individual, but as the human spirit 
the fight that one has in oneself. And, and in many ways, when mm. Jacob, um, I describe it like it felt like a very bad drama exercise. You know, it felt like one of those terrible drama exercises where you have to go out of the room and everybody's told to ignore the person when they come back in. And I couldn't, I couldn't, well, two things were running hand in hand, hysteria and comedy and, and a kind of deep sense of kind of pathos and how funny this was. You know, I kept on thinking the whole time, you know, I was talking to Jacob the whole time and I was almost like, I cannot wait to tell you what you did next. I can't wait to <laughs> share this with you because of course, you know, I have spent the last 18 years, Jacob was my first port of call on any idea, any story, you know, and, you know, my kids have evolved into that now and they were certainly been that over the last four years. So, you know, I, I could feel this story kind of unfolding and brewing. And, um, but I think the human spirit and the fight to survive, weirdly, I think, storytelling is the heart of that I think the reason why we tell stories is to connect to make sense to to relate to find empathy in 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 worlds in in character journey in experiences that we may not have in direct directly experienced and the job of the writer is to try and connect in a way that we can find some universal truths and we can find some connection points and so I guess for me I I never had I I've appreciated more just how important storytelling was to me and how I've used it in every form to survive. You know, I've used it when I've had a bad day when I was a kid at school. I've used it when I've wanted to connect with people I love. I've used it to try and connect with people I don't get on with. You know, we tell each other stories. We relate our, our experience. We talk about our days and we often do that to connect. And I guess the biggest thing that had ever happened to me in my life was happening to me, but it was also happening to this incredible community of people. It was happening to my children to my family, to Jake's family, who I'm very close to, and of course to Jacob. And so I felt this huge um, weight that I had to tell the story well. But in order to tell that, I had to tell every element, element of, the, of the experience. And of course, you're right, it was huge indignation, actually. I was so indignant. Yeah. You know, I was so yeah. indignant that I was being ignored. You know, there's a moment where I talk about where you know, Jacob asked me to leave the room because this very sweet woman who I'd suddenly appeared from nowhere was coming in to read the book, which was The Prince's Bride, which is his favourite book, which I had bought him for Christmas. And he was asking if I would leave the room, you know. And so this kind yeah. of, these, these personal slights became this amazing fuel for, for me. And in a way, I think it pushed me forward. And, you know, I always say to Jake, he kind of gave me the greatest gift ever. He gave me the greatest source material ever. So you know, the writing of it in many ways was the easy part. The living of it was the thing that was hard. Mm. Um, and the writing mm, of it, mm, I mm. feel, was the tool I used to understand, process, make sense of the experience. And I guess, bear, you know, to bear witness to it, because if you are yeah. someone who doesn't believe you're there, it was almost like I had to bear witness to it. I remember one day, and again, I talk about this. I remember one day asking Jake to test me on everything, you know, his favorite football player, his favorite food, his favorite holiday. And I got every answer right. And Jake looked at me with such a sense of deep suspicion. How was I doing this trick? And I think the writing of the book was also on a really profound way to try and show Jake there was no trick, that I was there, that this is something that I experienced, he experienced. And I guess also to show him what had happened to him. Because what I came to realize is that, you know, it wasn't that Jake had forgotten me, he'd forgotten himself. And it wasn't yeah. he who yeah. was, it wasn't me that was the imposter, it was he that was the imposter. He, he, he was trying to yeah. make sense of his world. So the person's closest, closest to him, if, if I was really me then he, and he was feeling so differently, then something was seriously wrong. So I had to be an imposter. I had to be something other because I was the truth speaker for him. 
And so if the truth was saying this was happening, I think I think that's what that's what I've come to terms and realized was really what's going on. Yeah. I mean it's 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 almost like um arguing with a conspiracy theorist or something, except you have to respond not with indignation, but with patience and understanding. I wondered how your kids felt witnessing that, seeing seeing his his rejection of you, his inability to recognize you. Did, well, I think, I think, been... I think as a community, you know, you're, those mm. you love, it's, it's with disbelief because it, in many ways there's a kind of cliche with it. We, we've all seen the film where someone wakes up and goes, I don't know who you are. It's a very mm. specific thing when they go, no, I know, I know who Abby Morgan is, but you're not it. So, you know, mm. Abby Morgan has left the room. You know, it's very strange feeling and I think for my children it was devastating and it was brutal yeah and yeah. you know I, originally when we first when this first happened we were told to use um this neuropsychiatrist at the hospital told us to use theory a theory b which is theory a 100 this is not Abby Morgan theory b Jacob you know we can never be 100 sure of anything so what if 99 this is not Abby but we say one percent it could be and the idea was they played with that percentage. And we all tried that for about three, four months and it just didn't work. And so very quickly, it turned into a kind yeah. of, you're not Abby Morgan, yes I am, no, you're not, yes I am. And it became this ridiculous kind of punch and Judy to the point that actually it was comedy. And I, and, and really the way I just, you know, Jake really gave me the great gift, which is one day I came in and he said, I've worked out, you must be working for the state. The state's employed you to come and help me and my children. And in a way, I realized what he'd given me. He'd given me a reason to be in the room with him because I think he was trying to find a reason for me to come in every day that would make sense to him. Yes. And in doing that, yeah. I became someone who was working for the state. I mean, you know, just saying that, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's very odd. It's four years on and I still find catching myself going, that's so crazy. Yeah. Um, but I guess yeah. what I realized is it's, this is a crazy that touches many people in the world. You know, it's not just me that yeah. experiences. And we've seen this in, in light of dementia or traumatic brain injury as a result of a car crash. It's just very unusual um, that with Jacob, it came out of something that was later revealed to be an encephalitis of kind of a rare form of encephalitis called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. So, you know, in a way that you know, it was very unusual to see someone of Jacob's age go through that. You know, I, 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 I mm. there was a lot of older people who had gone through, but no one of Jacob's age. And so there was such a strong sense of needing to try and help Jake find his way back because we started to hope and see and realize that Jake potentially had quite a long life still to live, you know, when we yeah. they lose him. So that also became incredibly motivating. I think the other um, element of the book that I found uh, incredibly affecting and and, uh, and impressive is what you refer to as the the second plot twist, which is your own diagnosis with cancer and the the, the chemotherapy and the operation that follows. And um, you write about it uh, again with with a with a very bracing honesty, but also with terrific humour. Um, and I wondered if how it felt in the process of writing to become. The subject of the of the emergency to to to, yeah. to to go from being an observer waiting patiently to suddenly being at the center uh how different it is to write that rather than this observational element you know i think life is a ball of string and the shock was we i could suddenly feel the end of it i could feel the tug and there was a looseness mm. and i was like oh my gosh so i think you know it, it was it was left to feel crazy you know when when i was diagnosed jacob 
came out of a coma in the end of January 2018. And then in the April, May 2019, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was so left of field. It was another, as you said, absurd plot twist. Um, and I think when I felt my own mortality being questioned, I think that was one of the hardest things that I mm. um, had to tell my children. And that to me is, you know, that is still the hardest thing because they felt, as I referred to in the book, they just felt not quite cooked. You know, they were 14 and 16 yeah. when Jacob collapsed. And I'm incredibly grateful that they got 14, 16 years of Jacob in a relatively healthy place. But there was still a lot of work, I felt, as a family that we had to do together and a lot of life we had to live together. And so I think when when a year and it looked like I was also, um, you know, really hit by by another kind of medical crisis. Um, I think, you know, that's when that thing of leaning into it and really leaning into the support of those around you and in a weird way, it was the least interesting element of the book for me, writing about my cancer. And I think that's partly because that's a little bit on ice as an experience for me. Mm. I, mm. I, I'm sure there's a lot more that I could emotionally plunder. And I'm incredibly, yeah. many people who write about breast cancer in an incredibly moving way and an important way. I think for me, it was just something I was trying to get through to get through to the other side. But weirdly, um, what I come to see and what I came to see in writing the book was that a little bit like, um, you know, like Jacob coming out with, uh, up with this idea of me working for the state. My breast cancer did one of two very strange things. Firstly, it, it became a kind of waking up for me that I had to start looking after myself. But also I think mm. for Jacob, it, he couldn't understand why he was feeling so much for this woman who worked for the state, why he was so acutely concerned about me. Um, yeah. And I, you know, it, it you know, and, and I and I sort of start to realise that, you know, Capgra delusion, it's it's one of the things that's very interesting about it is that it's a it's a, it's a severance of the visual and the emotional. When we look at someone, we also our neurons also connect to an emotional pathway. So when I look at you, I have memories of great dinners and amazing books and films that I've loved. And and so I have a lot of feeling for you. But when Capra occurs, that that connection feeling connection is cut. So when Jacob looked at me, he felt nothing. He kind of, mm. I looked sort of like the woman he knew, but I, I just didn't feel anything. And when Jacob, I realized Jacob was starting to feel something, that was when I realized that there was some recovery happening. There was green yeah. shoots in the middle of it. So there's a moment where I talk about in the book where um, we went out as we often did to our to a little Italian restaurant near the ho the hospital. I was about to call it the hotel. There's a comedy. <laughs> That's um, good. Uh, near the the hospital, and um, you know we it's it, you know we looked by that point very strange. You know I was bald and bloated from my steroids, and so was Jake. And so we would sort of like two little Alan Bennett characters together, and we were sitting opposite each other uh, at a rest at a restaurant table, and he just looked at me, and I have a very flat back of the head. And Jake and I, Jake always jokes about it that I was my, you know, my mother left me too long in the pram. I just was never moved. So, and he just looked at me and leant forward and put his hand and cut the back of my head. And he said, your head's flat at the back. And I went, yeah. And he went like Abby Morgan. And I went, yeah, like Abby Morgan. And I could mm -hmm. just see in that moment, there was just this flicker of, I've got something wrong here. You know, there was just this moment. And it was a, it was the turning point for me that, that I started to realize that actually, although the cancer was brutal and, you know, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, um, I was incredibly fortunate the drugs worked and will forever be grateful. You know, I knew that 
NHS was heroes for a long time before COVID happened. Um, but I got through it. But also, weirdly, I think it was Jacob starting to make a reconnection to me. And, yeah. and, and I guess when I, just as I started to come out of my treatment, so I went through a chemotherapy and mastectomy and radiotherapy. And just as I was coming out of that in the spring of 2020, that was when Jacob started to vocalise and verbalise that maybe he was starting to see similarities with me and the real Abby Morgan. I mean, it's absurd. I can hear myself yeah. saying it. So, yeah. So, so, so that was it. That was, you know, and in a way I try and prison that really. I mean, things, you know, life does tend to collapse like that. You know, one of the things I think mm. tries to explore, you know, you're someone who, you know, what I always love about your work, David, is the way you capture the kind of, extraordinary in the ordinary and the minutiae and in the human condition and often for me it's about relationships at different stages be it you know the older marriage of us or the kind of ever-evolving marriage of, of student love through to you know 30 something love in one day um and it's the greatest thing if you can try and capture something that is both unique and universal at the same time yeah. and I guess yeah. that's what I realized what I tried to focus on with Jacob and I is that I realized that we had a, this was a thoroughly ordinary, ordinary story, but something extraordinary was happening in the middle of it. Um, and yeah. so I, that's where I say that that was the gift of it is there's a writer. All I had to do was observe it. And the writer had me being able to observe it. I genuinely think is what saved me and kept my sanity in the middle of it all, you know. Um, I think I just at this point should remind everyone that um, I don't do a lot of interviewing, as you can probably tell. And if you're sat there thinking, I wish you'd ask about this, then this would be a good time to start feeling questions through in the comments, which you can do in the comments, which I will, I will ask um, as many as I can towards the end. But uh, I, I have this thing, another habit of, of, I always take the dust jackets off books. And if you have a copy of Abby's book, and I think that, which was designed by your, your brother. Is, My brother, is right? yeah, he's a graphic designer. Um, yeah. If you take the cover off, it says inside it's a love story. And um, I think that's the other thing uh, that I find extremely powerful in this in this book was that uh, amongst the the account of this emergency, there, there are also these wonderful vignettes of a, a long relationship and a long time together. And that it's a very beautiful book about um, marriage and... Uh, uh, family as well and I, I wonder how you found obviously that's something that you've written about in drama but I wonder how you found writing about that in in memoir um, because it's it's often quite a hard thing to to write in one uh, about one's own experiences in a very in a very direct way of memoir rather than through drama yeah I mean I I, I guess um, I guess I tried to I guess I became probably the worst kind of narcissist, I guess, you know, because I became fascinated by the kind of alchemy and the chemistry of Jacob and I, not only now, but in the past, because, and again, I think that was because I was trying to hold on to sanity and, and almost reassure myself that we'd had a relationship. So inevitably it meant that I traversed, you know, the, the, the highs and the lows of my relationship of which there were, have been many, you know, so, and, and, and what I've always tried to do is, I found the transparency and the, the kind of truthfulness and 
the honesty in which I'm often able to work and the, the choice of people I've chosen to work with to maintain that mm. kind of ecosystem. So I work often with the same producers and the same script editors because they know me well enough to know that I may talk in a half sentence, but there'll be something at the end of it that yeah. will make sense. Or, and so it's, it created an honesty in me, in me which I try, I've tried to put on my own work. That's not to say that there isn't the writer who's looking for the punchline and, you know, is aware of the audience. But I guess, you know, one of the things that people have leveled back at me is, and one of the things I, I circle in the book is whose story is it? Is it mine? Is it his? Is it our family's? And I've come to realise that it's, it's the kind of story of us which I hadn't expected to write. Um, and that, that was my responsibility to do that because obviously Jacob wasn't able to do that. Um, and I, I found it very fascinating to go back and really understand and understand why I felt the brand of my family, the brand of our marriage had been so blown. Not that anyone else was mm. looking, but that I'd made this brand up myself, this ideal, this image of what I thought we had to be. And I had to go quite brutally back into it to sort of interrogate it and make sure that, you know, to knock off the corners off the bits that weren't important and to really retrieve the bits that were. And I didn't yeah. expect to write a love story. You know, that wasn't what I set out to write. In many ways, it was a rant and a rage and a fury and a kind of howl to the moon, really. Um, <clears throat> and it was really my 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 publisher who went, you know, you've written a, a love story here. I mean, that came very, very late. Yeah. Um, but I guess if you've spent that long with someone, and, and one of the things that I guess came out of having spent that long time with someone, but also the rejection that was at the heart of that when Jacob didn't know me, was that I had to really start to look at Jacob as a person separate from me as my partner and my lover and my father and my children. And I, the fight came to try and bring Jacob back. And so I felt like I was yeah. really trying to understand Jacob and his psychology and all the reasons why I loved him. So, and I love those books. That's why, you know, I talk about your work. That's why I love the human condition. I love, I love the major happening, the minor. I love the earth shattering turning points being you know, as someone leaves to go away to, to university. I love the fact, you know, no one tells you, but the most profound moments for me, for me have happened in the, the, the least profound times, you know, you know, they often do yeah. have those tiny moments. So I guess it, again, it was just the gift and, and that transparency thing, I think people often say, God, you've really spilt your guts. Don't you feel very naked? Don't you feel very exposed? And weirdly, the truth will set you free. You know, there is a kind of truth in yeah, that. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, actually, what is there to hide? And I, I, there is still, I still have absolute privacy. Jacob and I have absolute privacy still. You know, we're not celebrities. We're not stars. We're not actors in that way. We're not out on the, you know, that's mm -hmm. why I think I've always loved being a writer. I could stand mm -hmm. behind the script and I still feel like that about the book. The book, gets, the book is mm -hmm. out in the world, but we're not out in the world. You know, our lives have gone yeah. yeah. It's been a real joy for me. I mean, what's interesting is going back to now writing fiction, you know, yeah. and hung and yeah. still trying to chase that kind of authenticity and truth. That's what I'm trying to do now. I mean, it's amazing to me that you were you were writing you were writing while all of this was going on and that writing the split that seems extraordinary. I want did you, did you find that it was informing your script work in any way? I don't. I, I don't. Well, weirdly, in, we just, in direct ways. Well, I was right. I was just finishing up on the. I was writing the second series when Jacob collapsed, and we were shooting it when I had cancer. And I think I was so in motion then. I don't think I was capturing that. I think the third series, when actually was in a much more relative period of calm. Yeah. That I wrote really when Jacob was home and we were going through recovery. I think that third series, that final series, which really looks at. Uh, uh, issues of mortality and profound love and loss and grief and joy and 
you know, survival of a family, despite the fact they're blown apart in many ways. Um, I think all of that has been absolutely informed by what I've gone through. Mm. And, and I think weirdly, I think the series has gathered and garnered love over the as it's evolved over the three series. But there's something about this series that I think landed. Yeah. Like and that's just to do with the brilliance of the writing and um, you know certainly the brilliance of the acting but I also think it's come out of COVID you know I think we'd all we'd yeah. all really you know and that's the other thing you know I guess my story I set against now much bigger much more complex difficult um medical catastrophe that the world's gone through and so it yeah. feels like it's one story in the middle of it and yet there are some kind of universal connections so I I really feel like the kind of love that the split got also came out of people people's love for their own families, people's desire to make connections on mm. a human level. And that's, I think, mm. a marriage of those three things, what I'd gone through, the show itself and COVID and what everyone else in the globe had gone through, really. I mean, I think that, that you mentioned it earlier, but there's a terrific sense of community in the book as well, not just within family, uh, but, but within the, the healthcare system and the carers who, who you come to know as well. And I, I, I found that, again, very affecting, touching part of the book. I suppose, again, I, I realise I keep going back to this notion of of, um, of fiction versus memoir. And you talk in the book about, because it's in the book probably, but you talk in the book about how, how you sometimes will talk to an actor and provide them with biographical notes, maybe details in their past, kind of backstory, the things that will help them uh, with their motivation and their journey. And I wondered when you yourself become the central character, if, if, if that is indeed what you are, were there any discoveries when you found yourself examining um, your reaction to the situation, um, uh, the history of your relationship? Were there things that made sense? And did that have, again, it's something you talk about in the book, did that in any way feel like a, a catharsis or a therapy of, of some kind? Uh, it's interesting because I think that the, the, the strength, the connection, the understanding I found about myself <clears throat> really came out of um, what Jacob had actually given to me. You know, I think, you know, I completely, I mean, I had a, one of those thunderbolt, instant love at first sight feelings for Jacob. He took a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't the same for him. And I would genuinely say I still feel in many ways the same way about him now as I did, you know, over 20 years ago. So, yeah. um, but Jacob has always, Jacob's always been the joy. You know, he's he's like, he's human, you know, he's human. He has his faults, but he's always been the joy. He's always been the risk taker. He's always been the, the, the finder of fun. And he's always been the one who's constantly pushed me not to take myself so seriously but be very serious about my work, be very serious about writing as truthfully as I can, but not to take myself too seriously. And, you know, you give what you get. You know, Jacob had given me so much. that The book was really me returning back the kind of, you know, the echo chamber of what we had together. And so I guess what I discovered is that our relationship was much more robust than I thought it was, you know. And I think we'd yeah. gone, you know, I talk about the times we'd gone to marital therapy and I talk about my jealousies and I talk about you know, those moments of deep insecurity and those moments of dislike. And, but what I also found when I sort of trawled my way through that story was, was the love, the connection. And also I had the living proof of it, my children um, who were so brilliant, but also in the house that we built together, which sounds ridiculous, but, you know, mm -hmm. 
just Jacob has really woven his way into our house, the relationships with his family. You know, a lot of things helped me us connect back to each other, which I write about. I mean, one of my first and most profound memories was was the Chris, first Christmas Jacob came home. And at this point, he had no initiation, very, very little initiation or agency on anything. But he was able to read the Hanukkah prayer word for word in Hebrew. And, you know, we are culturally Jewish, not, not necessarily religiously Jewish, but, you know, his family, he's always been brought up in a very Jewish household. And for me, that echo back to something which I didn't realize was already so important to me, but echoed back to him really made me ask profound questions about Jacob's identity, the identity of what we had been, what it was like to live with the Jewish person, you know, when you're not Jewish, what it's like to, you know, not be married and then become married, you know, and then get married, what it's like to raise teenagers in a in a city where there's so much going on and um, there's so much access and excess. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that was key that you mentioned was, it, 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 you know, one of the things I learned was that resilience and that ability to write is also what literally saved us. It meant that I could earn money to pay for the humongous amount of care that Jacob needed. And that's the one thing that mm. I'm navigating now. How what's the next thing I can do in relation to care? Because it's one of the profound problems with the NHS, which is I think it works incredibly hard to keep people alive. But the aftercare, you know, it's a broken system. Mm. And so yeah. there is no aftercare. And so I also learned that the very thing that I do to write to save me physically and mentally, but it also helped save Jacob's life because it paid for the very things I think is which led him to find his way back home, yeah. which was all the therapies and all the neuro work and all the occupational therapy and speech and language and physio, you know, uh, and that was all add on. It was nothing on offer. Um, so mm. I guess I've got a profound sense of, you know, that in my world, when I grew up acting, the arts was a job. It wasn't about kind of some esoteric sort of flight of fancy. It was how you paid your bills and it was really good to test it again so profoundly and realize that it, it also could bail me out of the most difficult situations does that sort of yeah. answer your question in a very yeah way? no it, it it does i i no i i i think it does i think it's um i mean i think what is i mentioned it earlier but it, what is uh, a wonderful aspect of the book is is the story of a, a relationship as well and i imagine there was a certain amount of uh, introspection, but also nostalgia and looking back at good times and bad times, and that that that's a, that's um that's a process that often can be quite um, surprising and revealing. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, um, uh, I I realised that I should I should um, move on to. I mean, I had two very quick questions. The, the questions are coming thick and fast, but I had two questions which I which I hesitated about because I wondered if they were sort of. Uh, nosy in some way the first i suppose was that it started as a you, you said that you thought of it initially as a as a play and often when dramatists uh write prose when i went from writing scripts to writing a novel the the first note i got from my editor was it's okay to tell people uh it's okay to tell readers what the characters are thinking because in the screenplay you know you have to get through that and you have dialogue and action but you can't stop for an internal monologue and uh, the internal monologue in this book is so uh eloquent and emotional it's clearly not something that you you struggle with at all i suppose what i'm wondering is do you think it could have another life in another form and is that something that now it's a book you might look you might be thinking about. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I've, I'm, I've obviously I've sold the film rights, and I will, I, you know, I am, I'm thinking about adapting it, but I'm, 
but I'm trying to justify why I, adapt, why I would adapt it and, and how, what would make it different. I mean, in a way, I'd be very curious about how you feel about adapting your own novels and that kind of transition and doing that. And also you hand yeah. over to writers because it's one of the things that I'm thinking about. You know, I've just started to direct a little bit. I'm no auteur, I may add, but I'm, I'm sort of tentatively looking at, well, if I did do it, would I direct it? How would I do it? I guess one of two things for me it would be about um telling the rest of it, a little bit more of the story not much more but just to, enough to mm. you know to to show the kind of relatively happy if very human normal ending that we have ha- managed to get to in the place we've managed to get to in terms of jake's brilliant recovery um but i i mean how i i i i, I can see there's a weirdly i still feel there's a play in it but i i also feel like my other head's going move on come on um, you know, yeah, bored yeah. of this, move on, come on. And so that's the that's the voice that I'm circling at the moment. But how do you feel about yeah. when can I throw that question back to you? Mm, you yeah. Your novels and when you start to, you know, you when you write a novel, be it us or one day, are you thinking this will make a great film or are you writing it for the sake of writing it in that form? I mean, genuinely not, because the the thing I love about writing fiction is the ability to move people. When I read a book, I think inevitably, how would you adapt this? And there are certain things which are very, very hard to do on, on screen, as you know, like children growing up is more or less impossible. In, in prose, you can move very fluidly through time and place. You know, you can write, I remembered when. And in a screenplay, you just have to put a big fat line through that because what are you going to do? Go back and build a set from, yeah. of a childhood home? I mean, you just can't do it. So there's a kind of fluidity and space in prose that I really, really relish, while at the same time knowing that the things that I that I tend to write three-act structures, you know, I just do instinctively. And the thing that I enjoy writing most is dialogue, and dialogue is very adaptable. So uh, it, it would be disingenuous of me to say... Often, if I come up with a story, I will consciously think, would this work better in script form? I.e., is it about action and dialogue? And is it set in a certain framework, frame of time? And uh, or do I want the kind of freedom and control that you get when you write prose? Because, you know, a novel also, a novel is 130,000 words and screenplays rarely more than 110 pages. So often the process of adaptation is just about pricey you know it's just about cutting stuff and and it that can be very frustrating and painful so i i love being able to do both and but they give me very different things and i, I even though they do sometimes cross over i try to be quite disciplined at making about making a book the best book it can possibly be while at the same time you know filling it with scenes and set pieces and the beginning and middle and an end mm. and all of those things that mm. that are central to a screenplay but i that's that's um. I think I could go on and on and on. No, I want to go. I wish we could and, go on about that. And the questions are piling up. So um, I will just um, just working through from the top. Uh, the, the next, the last question, which again you can answer. Uh, you don't even need to answer at all. Is I just wondered how Jacob was and whether there was a, a yeah, kind of he's amazing. To, he's to, made this extraordinary recovery um in the last sort of uh, nine months. You know, and it, it it was very odd. It was incredibly slow. It's the old Buddhist phrase, you know, love the flower in winter when it says nothing. And you think nothing's happening for what felt like years. And then 
very rapidly, probably a year ago, he started to literally wake up and the conversation right. and the wit and the humour came back. And he's phenomenal now. He's uh, our last carer left in the beginning of May and he loves to travel. He's very, very smart. Yeah, he's got some, you know, some physical, some cognitive um, issues that are, will be ongoing and, and permanent. Um, but he's fantastic. He's he's funny. He's lovely to live Great. with. So I feel very That's fortunate great to have got him back. I'm very pleased to hear that. Um, uh, I uh, first question: Does Jake have a sense of having missed this experience because of the coma? Yeah, I think it's very, very. I think uh, you know one of the things I get asked is, has Jake read the book? And he hasn't. Mm. And you know, I felt every emotion on that. I felt incredibly nervous when he hadn't read it. I felt very nervous about him reading it. Um, I feel a deep understanding of why he doesn't read it, and I think he's trying to make sense. Yeah. A lot of that is that very thing of he is still piecing it together, you know, because time collapsed and folded in for him. And so there are memories that he's completely lost. Certainly, you know, that whole coma period, he had no memory of at all. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say the good, a good year, year and a half afterwards as well, he has very little memory of. So when you start to piece together time, I think one of the key things has been very hard for him to get his head around the fact that the children are 20 and 18, because for him, it's, yeah. it's been a few months. Yeah, goodness. Do, 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 uh, what is the response? And this has also come up in the questions um, uh, of, of your family. I mean, well, how has well, the resp response to the book been? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't. From the people who feature in it. Yeah, I wouldn't have published the book without, you know, making sure that they had all read it first. And so it was published on the agreement mm. that they were all happy with it. So my children were the first to read it. And then my family and Jacob's family read it. And they were incredibly supportive. I mean, I was really lucky in their support and I think they've understood and really appreciate just how profoundly helpful it's been for me and so they've they've been you know they've been but they were absolutely my first critics my first readers and when my daughter read it she went mum are you okay about people not liking you <laughs> after this and I was like oh no so yeah they've been yeah they've been amazing I um I wondered, I mean, I have to say, I didn't find that at all. I think, I think the Abbey in the book is, is, is fantastically, I mean. Did you recognise me as someone who, yeah, absolutely. Did, did it feel like I'd, I'd done a bit of a trick? Or did no, you, did... I, I didn't feel, I didn't, and I also didn't feel that anything was being censored or, or, or held back. It reminded me, there's a wonderful book by Helen Garner. Have you read The Spare Room by Helen Garner? Yeah, I have. Which, which is incredibly bruising and frank about the limits of compassion and how, how being a, the demands of being a carer and how, how frustrating that can be. Um, and that's a very tough book. This I found very moving and emotional and romantic in lots of ways. So, mm. so I said, and, and funny, you know. So I certainly, I certainly did recognise you. Um, uh, this is another question: If you were going to write a novel, which I think you should, <laughs> do you, what would be the topic, and how? What do you think would be the benefits of writing it in, in a fiction form rather than a screenplay? Well, well, you know, I have to say, I mean, David, that's, you know, because you're someone I've always hugely admired that you've been able to write books from so right from the understudy and start of a 10 and all of those. Start of a 10 was a book first, wasn't it? I'm not crazy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So both of those books I remember reading very early on and, and being hugely impressed by that and thinking, God, why, why prose, why prose? I think it's taken me till I'm in my 50s to truly understand the joy of it. I mean, one of the things I find is that in television now, I tend to be the oldest person in the room. And there is a little yeah. part of me that is loving the joy of the simplicity of writing and not having a room full of editors who I love deeply and I have relied on essentially for my 
my process, but to have those periods where I just sit and write something for a few months has been great. So I have got a novel that I am brewing on at the moment. Great. Uh, very different, very different world at very different time, but I'm brewing on it. And I, I will become that person who gets drunk at a party and say, yes, I'm working on my novel and never yeah. ever finishes it. <laughs> But I find the process, I mean, the process is so different with, with, with the screenplay, you throw away so much and there's so many opinions and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's quite shocking to me when you, you know, writing a book, the degree to which you kind of in charge and of course you're edited and the editing is often wonderful, but it's, it's a world away from the kind of often quite ruthless editing Totally. An interpretation uh, of of screenwriting. Have yeah. you have you enjoyed the pro- the process? Of- I have. I've really loved it. I've really loved it, and I really love the joy and the as you said, the simplicity of it. I love that feeling of, you know, I, I think what, what often happens as well. You start doing half drafts in in screenwriting. You know, you're redrafting and redrafting. It's it becomes a little bit like you know the fashion for small plates in a restaurant. I sometimes feel like screenwriting becomes like that. You're trying so many different yeah. flavors that at the end you're like, did I actually eat anything? You know what? what yeah. You know, and it sometimes feels like that was the purity for me of sort of sitting down and and and, and taking out that chicken and basting it and cooking it and then eating it. It's yeah. very, it's a very full experience. My, I, it's very addictive. Although, and I love the isolation of it actually because one of the things yeah. I find is, you know, don't you love it when things get cancelled in your diary and you suddenly find a trip's been cancelled and you've got four days. Yeah. And you don't want to tell anyone because you just want to go, okay, I'm going to deep dive into something. Well, it doesn't happen very often, but when that does happen, that's really, oh, it lovely. is really lovely. It is. I mean, I think it's it's no accident. There's a cliche, isn't there, when a, a novelist on screen finishes a novel and they type the end and they, they smoke their cigar and everything. You couldn't do that with a screenplay because it doesn't ever have that kind of finality. It's just going to get moved around and torn to bits. Totally. And, you know, it's, it's, it's endless. Um, they're a really good question. So I want to I want to just whiz through a few. Did you encourage your children to write about their experiences? Um, there's um, a very touching thing, Mabel. Yeah, Mabel, Mabel made a series of recordings, which I talk about briefly, um, and who very sweetly said, Mommy, you listen to them. But I really felt profoundly that was her experience. It was the one area I could not, you know, I, I'd stop myself putting my size six boots and, you know, flourishing through it. Um, I, I think for both my children, I, I think as an experience, it will imprint them on, on them for the rest of their lives. And I think it's no surprise that my son's studying neuroscience now and is fascinated with memory. And it's all it's all about neuroscience around memory that is his big sort of focus. And that I think my daughter who's very creative will probably find a way to express it somehow. But, you know, I think they're teenagers and actually the one thing they were slightly cheated of, as a lot of teenagers were during COVID, you know, but that period where something very heavy hits your life, you want to encourage mm. them not to think about it. You want to encourage them to go through life and hopefully life will help them process it. So um, yeah. I imagine one day they might write something about it, but 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 I really feel that will be their thing. Do you think... Um... Uh, uh, this, uh, again, is to do with the nature of writing prose. How did you decide on the form and the tense of the writing and, and, and maintain it for the duration of the book? And how did you know where to end it? Did you just have this? I mean, I know you read a lot of fiction, but mm. did you have a, was that sense kind of innate that it should be written in this? Yeah, I felt, I felt like, I, well, in a weird way, it felt like a fugue that came over me. And when I reached the point of that final fugue where it felt like there was a natural sort of, uh, we'd hit a kind of piece of dry land, as I refer to it. It was that feeling that we were almost hitting a bit of dry land. It felt like the right place to leave it. I didn't want to leave it in a place of absolutes. And I mm. guess it also slightly related to my time. You know, I started writing it in October, November 
um, 2020 and the book ends. There's a little footnote really uh, to the spring of 2021, but the book kind of covers that period. And I think it was just when I was starting to feel like that was the kind of arc of that story and we were starting to reconnect again as a family. And so that felt like the journey of losing ourselves as a family was sort of coming to its end. You know, we'd found, we were starting to find ourselves again. Um, I yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the hardest things, we, we talked about it when you read it, the hardest things was, you know, is it the first person? Is it the third person? Who am I? You know, the book oscillates between me talking directly to Jacob, the you, and then, you know, mm. you know very much in the third person, the he. So I, I oscillate all the time and I don't always get it mm. right. It's one of the things I think really shows my inexperience at prose writing, actually. Um, but there is an it's good to be right but I think there is something <laughs> kind of ragged in it and, and imperfect in it and that's sort of because it came out of the emotion and the the experience really which yeah. was ragged in an imperfect experience I mean that's what I felt it's true that there are you know that the the, the the form the form fits the experience that there will be an anecdote and then you'll be somewhere else and then you'll be in the past and then you know there'll be a vision of the future and then there'll be a, a little bit of family biography and you know it, it it has that quality i suppose of to a certain degree of kind of watching and waiting and observing that 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 that, that um that feels you know, absolutely apt for this story uh, so i hope i didn't give you any notes because i didn't think i had any i just thought it was I just there's just I, I was lucky enough to come to one of the launch events and I met a number of these people. So I just there's a question here of the medics uh, who treated Jacob read the book and must be thrilled to have such a poignant memoir that explains this syndrome and condition. And it does feel a very populated book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, the, you know, Jake and my life was saved by. Uh, the doctors and in fact I saw my oncologist today and gave her a copy of the book so um, so she was very late to get it but yes Jacob's key consultants most of them have read it and have been amazingly supportive um, and of course the therapists who we employed were amazing from you know his neuropsychiatrist through to the physio and the occupational therapist and they've all just been mm. fantastic and in fact came to our launch port party so they were such a well they were essential in in, in saving our lives yeah. saving Jake so yeah they've read it it was great to meet some of them and, and talk about it. And there was, um, I think, in that in that room at the at the launch party, terrific sense of of kind of um, of of love and warmth. Uh, and I, I think that's all in the book. And and so we have to wind up now. But it's been uh, lovely to talk about it. I mean, I've heard you talk about the book a, a couple of times, and it's never fails to. Um, I, I never fail to be moved and uh, amazed by the experience but also impressed by the skill and the eloquence and honesty with which you write about it so it's been thank very you, lovely to talk to you about it thank you thank you for the be being the one for asking the questions but also for your lovely generous soul that has really supported this book when I first wrote it and you were one of the first readers to read it so I really really appreciate everything the book's here oh no it's, it's a pleasure there are... thank you I well, got bumped off the front cover by Meryl Streep. So <laughs> <laughs> God probably, damn it. You may have done that to several people, I think. I, I don't think you'll be alone in that. That's terrible. Um, thank you both so, so much. That was just a completely magical hour and I could have listened to you for the rest of the evening. It was so full of insights and warmth and just kind of wonder. And Abby, we're so pleased that 
this has a success story that you're back together and it is absolutely the nicest uh the nicest way to end and it makes me feel very uh in the middle of all these terrible things that seem to be swirling around us it's extremely heartwarming and wonderful to read your book and to listen to you and david the same is true for you you know your books are very uplifting for all of us so thank you both very much for sharing the time with us please buy all david's books watch his screenplays and please go out and get a copy of abby's book because it's it's absolutely her title is right it is not a pity memoir it's an amazing wonderful read and i have i was a bit shocked to hear you say you felt very amateur as you were writing this uh piece of non-fiction because it certainly doesn't come across like that it's just a great great read and it's lovely to see you Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for being here. And we'll see you soon. We've got Colin Colby and Wayne Rin coming up, all sorts of great people. So watch this space. Thanks a lot and good night. Thank you, everyone. Bye bye.